Thank you, Kristen. It is well with my soul. Is that true of you today? Amen. Regardless of the situation, the Lord gives us peace, gives us grace beyond circumstances and understanding, and so we are grateful for his providence in those areas. I'm Kurt Parker. It's good to be with you this morning. We're going to continue in our worship together by the study of the Word of God. You can turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll also be in Romans 5 today. You can mark those, both of those, one with your finger, one with your bulletin. If you have little ones up through grade four and you'd like for them to be in a, a graded uh, church time service, you can dismiss them at this time. You're welcome to keep them with you as well as we study the word together as a family. I pray that you've been in the word today and every day this week that is God's design for you. We have a way you can do that together with us, together in the word. We have a threefold that you can get at the welcome table just right outside the double doors there on my left, your right. That will take you through the Bible in a year. I encourage you to do that, to make that your habit, to be in the Word every single day, to be hiding the Word in your heart, as David said, so that we might not sin against God. And so it is his desire that we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The way we do that is through the study of the Word. So if you show up today and you haven't been in the Word all week, what are you? You are starving this morning, all right? You spiritually, you're starving, and that's not where the Lord wants you. So feed yourself through the week, and we together will do what we've been doing all week here on Sunday mornings. Turn in your copy of God's Word, 1 Corinthians 15. We'll pick up in verse 21. We're in a continued study, of course, and if you've been with us, you've had the benefit of all that background. Of course, that is not uh, the sole uh, solution to studying the Word. You could have shown up here and not been with us. The Lord still works through His Word. His Holy Spirit goes to work in our own hearts, teaching us, uh, molding us, perfecting us, doing His work in us. We did, we've given this service to the Lord in a number of different places today, this morning. Our group met back in the hallway this morning. We prayed up here as a band, and I've been praying together, as Stephen, you have as well, Sunday school classes. So we just trust the Lord to do his work through his word and teach us as he sees fit and make us more like his son. Let's read together our, this whole section that we're studying so we can get the whole picture. Uh, it sounds complex. It really is not. We've laid a lot of groundwork, and if you've missed a few, you can go online, brianjourney.org, and you can look in archives, and you can look up these sermons. And catch up if you've missed a few and just kind of see where we've been. But look at verse 21, if you would. And we're going to read all the way through verse 28. I'll try not to be that guy that I just had on the cartoon back behind me. Verse 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. after that those who are Christ's at his coming, verse 24. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, verse 26. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, verse 27. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says... All things are put in subjection. It is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Paul, as he is carried along by the Holy Spirit, is mapping out for the church the origin, the progress, and the destination of death. And so we've labeled this section, these verses right here, Authority over death. Resurrection authority is the whole chapter. Authority over death, this section. 
He's going to map out, really, as we saw last week in this section, as you can see as we look at it, where death came from, what happened along the way, where it's going, much like a GPS plots out your route for you that does the same thing here Paul does for the believer. The Lord doesn't want any of those things to be a mystery, and so he has carried Paul along by the Holy Spirit to give them to us. If you are a note taker, you can find on the back of your bulletin the notes for today, and behind me on the screen you'll see some underlined things. Those are your takeaways for today if that's helpful. And so you can follow along in that way. Now, because the Lord doesn't want this to be a mystery, verse 21, Paul, uh, that very first part, he makes the origin of death clear. He says in verse 21, For since by a man came death. And the parallel passage we looked at last week, and we'll be back there again today, it was from Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, we saw that Paul tells us how death came. It came as a result of sin. It does not say that Adam invented sin. Sin was already around prior to Adam. Adam learned sin from Satan. The Bible just says that through Adam, sin made its entry into the realm of humanity. And when Adam sinned, everything changed. Sin impacted all of creation when it entered into the realm of Adam. And if you go to Romans chapter 8, verse 18, which we won't do today, and following all of that section right there tells us some of the impact that Adam's sin brought to the created realm. And it is also waiting to be delivered from its death. But here, Paul is dealing with the deadly effect of sin on the human race. Sin brought about physical and spiritual changes to Adam and to everyone who would follow him. And every human life comes from him. And the Bible says that when his nature was polluted by sin, it really set up every single descendant of his to be polluted by sin. And from Romans 5.12, we saw a few important principles that helped us understand Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians 15.21, because Paul really, he streamlines his comments in 1 Corinthians 15, but you know that he spent 18 months there in Corinth with them. It's likely he went through all of this, so he's able to just kind of streamline them, bring them back to their memory. What's going on here is some of them have embraced the idea that the dead don't rise. And so Paul is taking them through the gospel, then he takes them through why it's important that they not hold on to that false doctrine of the dead don't rise because everything centers on Christ's resurrection. Then he moves on here and he talks about the origin of death and what's going to happen along the way. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 uh, is explained by Romans chapter 5 and we're going to look there again. And I'm not going to go all, through all the background of these principles because we saw them last week and you can catch up online. But the first principle that we saw was this, sin entered into the, into the world through one man. And the second one we saw is the consequence of sin also entered into the world when sin entered the world. And that consequence was death, and they are connected together. When sin came, so did his penalty. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, Paul is speaking of the death principle, and it goes hand in hand with the sin principle we looked at last time. Now, Genesis 2, 17, we saw last time, God warned Adam and Eve of the consequences of their sin, uh, the potential sin. Verse 17, he says this, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So he made it very clear. So thirdly, the third principle we saw last time was uh, death wasn't in God's original intent for man. That was a consequence of sin, but it wasn't his original intent. Death came as a penalty, a consequence of rebellion, of disobedience, and, and every descendant of Adam shares in this principle. And then fourthly, we saw fourth principle, death then is not a result of personal acts of sin. So in other words, if you had lived a life here perfectly, it's not possible, but theoretically, you would still be under the death principle because it was handed down to every descendant of Adam. You understand? And when we sin, we just reveal the sinfulness that's in our own heart. 
when we lie, that doesn't make us a liar. We are a liar. We lie because we are a liar inside, you see? And so the death principle is handed down. The sense principle is handed down. And so death, then, is not a result of personal acts of sin. Now, just to kind of... Uh, justify God as if he doesn't it needs justifying when when the final judgment comes the, the Bible tells us that he's going to open up all the books everything that you've said everything that you've done he's just going to verify in fact that you are a sinner and have done sins and none, no good thing you can do is going to overcome the death principle or the sin principle that's already at work in you but he's just going to make it clear to you hey in case you thought you were pretty good here, here's the here's the list of things that you did all right, so that's just for free. We just threw that in there. But the back fact of the matter is, death is not a result of personal acts of sin. It's a result of the sin principle that started with Adam and was passed down to every other individual who's descended from Adam. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So fifthly, we saw everyone is classified as sinning in Adam. And so death reigns over sin. Because where sin is present, death reigns. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says, for since by a man came death. And we saw that, that was describing several kinds of death. Spiritual death, first of all. Spiritual death is separation from the living God. When Adam sinned, he may or may not have felt anything. He changed everything. But he may not have felt anything, but he died spiritually at that point. That's separation from the living God. When Adam sinned, he didn't die physically at that moment, even though the Lord said, you will surely die, and certainly physical death is coming. But he did die spiritually. Spiritual death happened the moment Adam rebelled. Secondly, for since by man came death, is physical death. Physical death is separation from the living. That is a reminder that we are not on the track God intended for us. And when we look around and we say, you know, you know death is a natural occurrence. Actually, death is not natural to men. It has been imposed as a penalty for sin. That is not what God intended for men. But that's in the future. It's also inevitable and left untreated. It leads to the third kind of death God was referring to, which is eternal death. Eternal death is eternal separation from the living God and the living forever. It's just the forever state of the two previous deaths, where you're separated from the living God, you're separated from those who are physically living, and you will be with those who are eternally dying forever. So we come into the world then, just to kind of sum it up, we come into the world spiritually dead, we come into the world headed for physical death, and if something doesn't happen to make us spiritually alive, eternal death, because in Adam, all die. Now, beloved, just again as a side note, when you give the gospel out, you have to lay that foundation. You understand that the good news isn't good news if you haven't heard the bad news. And I've told you this over and over, we haven't re reviewed it in a long time. But when you give the gospel out, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's good news if you understand that you are under the penalty of death, separated from God spiritually, on your way to physical death, and if untreated, eternal death forever. That's the way the gospel then rings true. And people may reject it outright in your face, but when you sow the seeds of truth in their life, the Holy Spirit then can go to work in drawing them to his son. You have to make it clear what the real situation of men really is. So we come into the world spiritually dead. We come into the world headed for physical death. If something doesn't happen to make us spiritually alive, eternal death. And that's how it is. Verse 21, 1 Corinthians 15, for since by a man came death. And verse 22, for as in Adam all die. Adam's sin then was legally and effectively our sin. And Adam's death is legally and effectively our death. And Adam, if you will, was the first fruits of sin and death. And you can't isolate yourself from those things. You're connected by birth. 
You also can't isolate Jesus from everyone else who came into the world a perfect man without the inherited sin. And you can be connected by second birth to him and what he's done. And that's Paul's second statement in verses 21 through 22, which is what we're going to look at today. Look at verse 21. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22. So also in Christ all will be made alive. So as the Holy Spirit really maps out and displays for the church the origin of death, which was sin, and the progress of death, it spread to all mankind because all have sinned, and the destination of death, Paul's going to address that in numerous ways. Now look at verse 21, 1 Corinthians 15. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, verse 22, for is in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now let's make a few observations as we look at this second half of both of these verses. So observation number one, and I think as you study the word of God on on your own uh, throughout the week, these are the ways that you approach, these are the ways you should approach the the word. If you, as I've told you before, have a notebook next to you, you write the things down that are important, write questions down that you may have, work your way through the word, you'll find yourself answering questions as you read other passages. These are some of the observations. You can look at this verse and you can say this, okay? The Holy Spirit, through Paul, depicts Adam and Jesus as the heads of humanity. Now, he does that in numerous different places, and we're going to see it again in, in Romans 5, but he, 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 he depicts Adam and Jesus as the head of humanity. Adam, with his, and perhaps you've heard this before, headship of death, and Jesus with his headship of life. Adam introduced death, but the Christ will abolish death. Paul refers to the extremities of history and death. See, it's beginning and it's end. So as he maps it out, he's just going to say, as you might do on your, on your GPS, it says, what's your starting point? And what's your ending point, right? And then, then you plug that in, and then it gives you all the waypoints along the way. But you know what, where you're going to start, and you know where it's going to end. And Paul does very much the same thing. Observation number two, and this is just obvious, but I think it's worth mentioning. The all in the sentence concerning Adam are not identical with the all who are in the sentences concerning Christ. And we'll see that again later in Romans. Each of, of the, as we'll see today, the two Adams acts as the head of humanity, are old, uh, the old and the new. Uh, and not all people, of course, belong to the new. Okay, so everybody belongs to the old. That's Adam's act, okay? And then Jesus is the head of humanity, coming forth and bringing forth victory over death. That's the new. And not everybody who's in the old will automatically be in the new. So Paul's not saying all are going to be made alive. So don't worry about evangelization. Don't worry about, you know, in Romans, don't worry about the other four chapters I just went through with you, which talk about how desperately sinful you are and separated from God. Because everybody's going to be made alive anyway. Don't worry about it. Paul isn't saying that. Okay, so the all in the old is not equal to the all in the new. Okay? Not all people belong to the new. The verse isn't supporting some kind of universalism that everybody's going to be saved. Paul is saying that in Adam, and that is the whole human race, all that were born singularly in Adam die. And while we understand that the gospel... Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, provides the opportunity to be in, okay? And those that are in Christ or those that believe or those who call on the name of the Lord or those who confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, all those things that we've talked about, which is a way to express belief in what Christ has done. So all those who are in Christ will live, see? So observation number three, be made alive then, so if you look at, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's the last observation I want you to look at. Made alive refers to more, and we're going to see this, 
than resurrection as such. It's not just physical resurrection, okay? It's not just spiritual resurrection. There's more to being made alive than just that. It includes the thought of the abundant life that Christ brings to us and to all who are in him, okay? So there's a very broad application to me being alive. Christ offers, right, John, uh, what, 1010? That he offers us an opportunity to be made alive and that abundant life that is through him. Now, that's a quick review and some added information that we didn't have time for last week. Now, as we saw last week, there's a place we can look that's going to explain this principle of life that cancels out this principle of death that's at work in the human race. And that's in Romans chapter 5. So turn there, if you would, and hold your your finger here, because we'll go back and forth. But Romans 5, verse 15 is where we're going to pick up, okay? Romans 5, 15. And again, uh, this is a marvelous place where Paul really explains it more clearly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, he sums it up. In Romans chapter 5, verse 15, he really breaks it down for us. So I want us to look at it, if you would, together. So Romans 5, verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, and you see Paul's right in the same flow as he was uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's talking about the exact same thing, and he's explained it much more in depth, and we've, of course, looked at um, verse 12 through 17 last time, rather, 12 through 15 last time. We'll look through 15 through 21 this time. So, but the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, so then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Verse 19, for as through one, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see that? Verse 20, some people will come and say, well, what was the point of the law if, if if people were already dead. And, and I just want to make this note just quickly, and you can kind of log this kind of in, in the back of your mind. We won't go through it today because there's not enough time. Here's the thing. Did you know when the law came, it didn't add anything to the death principle? It was already in place, wasn't it? The law was, when the law came, the death principle was already there, and it was already at work in men. So what was the law to do? What did the law do? Well, it just explained just how desperately sinful people really were, right? It gave a measuring rod at that point, didn't it? God already said death came through sin, and Adam sinned. But just in case you were a little nebulous on just how bad the sin was, God gave his law. So now you can measure it. Okay, not only did I make this mistake, I've made 5,700 other ones too. Okay, and so for the unredeemed, all it did was, it didn't add anything to the death principle, it was already there. It didn't add anything to the sin principle, it was already there. But what it did was, it gave a measuring rod. 
And now you can see how desperately wicked you really are. So in God's graciousness, he gives the law because the law is good. It, 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 ex it expresses his mind, right? But for the unredeemed, it just shows how desperately wicked we really are. So that's important as we explain the gospel. Listen, because people will say to you, they'll say, well, I don't really sin. Really? Well, have you ever cheated or lied or stolen anything or, you know, used God's name in vain? Well, yeah, well, he's broken several of his commandments. I mean, the top 10, he could have given us a top 100, you know, or a top 50 or, or whatever. He gave us a top 10, and you've broken four of them. So I think you're in the category of those who say, but I don't sin that badly. Okay, well, the Bible says that if you've broken one law, you've broken all the laws, you've sinned against God, you've revealed your own sin nature. And to be honest, when you're by yourself, do you really live up even to your own standards? I mean, you beat yourself up at home sometimes, right? When you go home. I mean, you think about, oh, man, that was a really, I mean, I didn't, do much, I didn't do very well today. Well, see, not only do you not live up to your own standards, that's what I say, but you don't, you don't even come close to living up to God's standards. Here are his standards, see? Now, that's the bad news. And Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and was buried and was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. You see, bad news? Oh, man, I'm in bad shape. How bad a shape? Well, let's look at God's law. We'll see. Good news. Christ has died for our sins, according to the scriptures. So very important connection when you're giving your testimony how did you understand those things we we like to really be heavy on the personal things that happen to us and those are important because they they identify us individually with the lord but listen the bad news and good news has to be in your testimony or you're not going to see any fruit from it see, beloved because it's not just the wonderful benefits of salvation that are that are important for people because people who have a pretty good life they're not really that interested in in uh, seeing you know your good life People understand that it's deceptive, that their life really is not that great, and that they are in death spiritually already, and that can be deceptive because the life may be great, and you explain that to them, then the good news sounds good. So, if you would, look back with me at, first, at Romans chapter 5, verse, verses 20 through 21. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, look at this, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, so the, the law didn't change that. Sin reigned in death. It just increased the transgression. It showed how bad it really was, see. Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this obviously expands on Paul's theme from 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and following. And that theme is the authority over death. Jesus is raised to life then and has authority over death. And that authority over death has some benefits, as we'll see later in 1 Corinthians 15. But here we see it in verse 17, right? Towards the end of the verse, we see that we will reign in life, right? Verse 18 says that we have the justification of life. Verse 21 says that we have eternal life. And so, as we saw last week in Adam, there's death. In Christ, there's life. Now look back, if you would, at, uh, at verse 15, where Paul really explains 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22 more fully. And he explains the free gift. Uh, by a man came the resurrection of the dead, and Christ all be made alive. And he explains the transgression, which is by since by a man came death, for as an Adam all died. Okay, so he's going to take those those phrases, that idea, and he's going to explain them very clearly here in verse 15 and following. So, and we're going to note a couple of important principles as we normally do. We just this, these are things that you need to note in your mind. And so I'll start giving those to you, and they'll be on the screen, and you can follow along with them. All right. Now look at Romans 5:15, and we'll read it again, if you would. <clears throat> but the free gift is not like the transgression for if by the transgression of the one the many died 
How much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many? Let's stop right there. Let's break it down. All right, number one, the free gift is not like the transgression. So first principle, Paul says they're similar and they're different. Here's how they're similar. Each one was done by one man. And that's very consistent, isn't it? We looked at that earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. The Holy Spirit through Paul is just affirming the incarnation. Jesus was fully man. And both of these acts were done by men. So they are equal in that respect. That's where they're similar. But the act itself is very different. Look at, the, look at uh, verse 15 again. But the free gift, these are the two words you need to look at, is not like the transgression. So they're similar in men, as being men, but the free gift and the transgression are not similar. And that's exposed in those words, free gift and transgression. Adam, on the one hand, does an evil thing against God. Christ, on the other hand, does a righteous thing, which expresses the mind and heart and will of God. So on the one hand, you've got Adam doing an evil thing that expresses rebellion, that brings death on all mankind through that sin. And Christ, on the other hand, does a righteous thing, and that expresses the mind and heart and will of God. So that's, they're only similar in the fact that they're both men, so that one can cancel the other out. They are dissimilar in every other area. The free gift and the transgression, very dissimilar. Now, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, so we see here, the free gift and the transgression both accomplish something. Okay, so let's look at that. For if by the transgression of the one, see where we are? Second sentence in verse 15. For if by the transgression of the one, and that's Adam's sin, the many died. Let's pause right there. And how many is the many? We just looked at that, all men, okay, all men. So the principle is, the sin of Adam involved all his descendants. They are all guilty and all ruined in Adam. And because sin and death go together, all his descendants have imposed on the, upon them the sentence of death. And we saw that last time, we see it again this time. Now you may say, it just seems like we're repeating it over and over again. Paul is repeating it. And you can say, man, this is so repetitious. Or you can say, this must be super important if Paul took two paragraphs to say basically the same sentence in a number of different ways. Because this is really the starting point for all. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who's all? Everybody. Everybody. There's a sin principle on you and a death principle on you from birth. You cannot escape it naturally. And so Paul explains it numerous times. So realize that the emphasis and overemphasis is because it's very important to understand the starting point. This is what Adam accomplished. He involved all his descendants. They're all guilty. They're all ruined. And because sin and death go together, all of his descendants have imposed. That's you and me and everyone who's descended from Adam, the sentence of death. Adam did that, but Jesus did. Look at verse 15 again. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Let's break that down. So according to Paul, Jesus' act accomplished something greater. He's going to say that two different ways, how much greater, okay? And that's obviously the grace of God in giving Jesus as a ransom. That's what he's speaking of. The, this grace of God, this free gift, it's Jesus as a ransom because you're stuck and I'm stuck. We're in a pit. We can't get out. There's no way to uh, get ourselves out of the predicament that we're in. So God gives a free gift. This is a grace gift from, the go from God to redeem us. He gives Jesus as a ransom. So principle number three. Free gift of Jesus, that's salvation through his resurrection, not only freed men from death, but catch this, beloved, it took them eternally out of the reach of death. So not just reset to Adam, okay? Not just, okay, let's make everything new back to Adam, 
but a permanent righteousness of Jesus. That's how much greater what Jesus did than what Adam did. Adam set everybody in sin. Jesus comes and doesn't just reset everybody back to Adam. He resets everybody beyond Adam, beyond the reach of sin, see? Adam, through the course of his descendants, through natural reproduction, passed down the principles of sin and death. Jesus, being raised from the dead, rendered powerless then the principles of sin and death for everyone who believed or will believe in one powerful moment, see? Jesus is, so here's the thing. Jesus' authority over death is much greater than Adam's authority over death. You see, Adam brought death to all men, but Jesus' authority is much greater. We're going to see this even more uh, emphasized in just a minute. Jesus' power is greater than Adam's power to destroy. Isn't that great? Not only does he just, Jesus doesn't just reset to Adam, then they would be equal. Jesus goes beyond Adam, see? And so his power to redeem is greater than Adam's power to destroy. So look at verse 15 again. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound. That's a great verb, eris active indicative. Eperistusin. It's something that happened in the past, carried on with continual results on into the present. It abounded to the many. Now, that's a great word, and I want to show you a parallel passage that's going to use the word that can tell you exactly how much abounding we're talking about. And that's found in Matthew chapter 14, verse 16. So I want to share that with you. So, Jesus has been teaching his disciples, and everybody's around him, a huge crowd of people. It's late, and everybody's hungry. And he says, you know, they tell Jesus, you need to break, okay, because they need to go to lunch. Kind of like what you're thinking about 12, 20. He needs to break, and I need to go to lunch, okay? So, they're saying, hey, they need to go to dinner, and it's a long ways home. So, they're not, you know, they're going to faint on the way, so you need to let them go. So, Jesus says to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Verse 17. They said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. Verse 18. And he said, bring them here to me. Verse 19. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was, here's the word, parasio, left over. They picked up what abounded. Okay, so, of the broken pieces, how much? Twelve baskets, so there, and there were about, it says, 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. So, let's connect that. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, for as an Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The uneven accomplishments in the comparison in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 can be overlooked and misunderstood. You might not catch that. So how big a difference is what happened here? It just looks like Christ set everybody back to normal, okay? That's not it. So in, in, in Romans, he makes it really clear. In verse 15, he says, for by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And it's illustrated in, in, the, in the passage in Matthew, okay? The boy had how much? How much did the boy have? Five loaves and two fish. That's all they had. It was a huge crowd. 5,000 men plus women and children. So that doesn't seem like much. This is Paul's comparison, okay? This is the connection, and he uses this word, okay? But they ended up with enough to feed 5,000 men plus women and children with 12 baskets left over. See the difference? So it says in, in, in uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 15, So for by the transgression of the one, the many died... 
So that would basically be equal to, if you think about the word abound, what the disciples brought in a basket, five loaves and two fish. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. That's what was left over after Jesus got involved. What's the difference between the two? Five loaves and two fish, or enough to feed 5,000 people plus women and children, and 12 baskets full left over. That's the difference, see? And it's easily overlooked. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, you can just kind of, okay, well, Jesus took care of it. But I want you to appreciate that, and I think that's Paul's emphasis here. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound. So death came through Adam. Through Adam it came to all men. But death's power can be shattered by Jesus. He can break the power of sin. And it says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death. So he's burying it. It's not just he's resetting us to Adam. He's abolishing death, see? And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Isn't that marvelous? What's the gospel? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day raised according to the scriptures. Adam's act is overpowered by Jesus' act. Jesus' act can't be overruled. Isn't that great? The effect of Adam's act can be canceled. The effect of Jesus' act is eternal. Adam can't gain victory over Jesus, although Jesus has gained victory over Adam. And it's applied to you if you believe. In other words, if you've received from God the gift of grace through Jesus, how long are you going to have it? Can it ever be overruled? And no act by any man, Adam or any other, including you, can ever change that. Because Jesus' success in his one act abounded over Adam's one act. Isn't that amazing? That's marvelous, folks. Okay? Just kind of, on the way home, just kind of think about that. Adam's act was overruled by Jesus. Superabounded over. Buried in the illustration between the five loaves and two fish and enough to feed 5,000 people plus women and children and 12 baskets left over. And that doesn't even compare still. The comparison is still falling short. Adam's act can never be restored. He can never overpower Jesus. Ever. See? Because Jesus' act overpowered it. So, again as we talk about the security of salvation for the believer. It's not a marginal doctrine, is it? It's woven in everywhere, isn't it? Adam's act was overruled, and you were in Adam, and now you're redeemed. And as a previous descendant of Adam, but now one who's connected to Jesus, you can't overrule it either. Jesus' act is that much more powerful than Adam's. It took us back past Adam to a place of eternal security. And so we can live without fear that anyone could break back through the power of Jesus. Now, we foreshadowed this already, but let's look at verse 16. And I'm taking too long, and so I'm going to have to pick it up. Verse 16. Here he says this. And he's going to make another comparison. I think you're going to really enjoy this. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. So again, the only thing that's similar between the two is they're both men. Okay? After that... Similarity cease, and everything's different. So, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression, resulting in condemnation. Look at verse 16. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. Here's our fourth principle. So, the condemnation that came on all was for one sin. And we said this over and over, but Paul just says it over and over, so we're going to re reemphasize it. Okay? Every man born into the world is a sinner because of one sin, by one man, 
at one point in time, and that's Adam. So verse 16 says, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. Now let's define some terms here before we move on, okay? Judgment is the decision God made because of the action of sin. Now he wasn't reactionary, okay? He'd already said, if you sin, you're going to die, okay? So that was the judgment. The condemnation is the penalty, okay? So judgment, it's the verdict. You've sinned. The condemnation is the sentence being served, okay? So both of those came to all men by one sin, Adam's. Now look at the end of verse 16, if you would. But on the other hand, I'm trying not to do pastoral aerobics. I'm not trying not to do pastoral aerobics. Like I said, I wouldn't do. But it's hard to do that when you go the one hand and the other hand. I mean, you just want to throw them all out there. Okay? But on the one hand, the free gift arose from what? What's it say? Many transgressions resulting in justification. So again, we're going to have a comparison of the less to the greater. Okay? One sin with Adam's work. Verse 15 stresses one man. Verse 16 stresses one sin brought about judgment, brought about condemnation on everybody. And many sins in relation to Jesus' work, that's the free gift, takes into account many offenses. So, principle number five, here it is. Jesus' one act of justification, catch it, can forgive all transgressions from everybody. That's how much greater it is, see? So the evil, okay, the evil from which, catch this, Jesus saves us is far greater than the evil that Adam initiated. That's his point. He doesn't just remove the curse, he justifies us from an innumerable load of sin. Not just the one sin that Adam started that passed down, but an innumerable load of sin from everybody who's been sinning. You see? All the sins piled up. And that tells us a little bit about God, right? How many sins did it take for God to condemn the whole universe? One. So, if you're just using conjecture, what do you think his thoughts are about sin now? They're exactly the same, right? Do you think he's really serious about it? If it only took one sin to condemn the entire universe, do you think he's serious about sin? I mean, we probably would have waited, you know, if it was you and I, we would have waited until there was an established pattern. I mean, okay, it's, you know, it's like you do a coaching here. You see if you, they mess up one time, you're like, well, I'll see if they mess up again. If they mess up again, I'm going to pull them out and correct it. Not like that, right? <clears throat> we would have waited for an established pattern. And it was an established pattern, wasn't it? I mean, this wasn't like God saying, okay, one mess up and, you know, you might have done better next time. Jesus knew, God knew that this was an established pattern. We would have waited, you know, we'll keep going, you know, if they keep doing this, we'll pull them out. He didn't wait, did he? He tells us, that tells us a little bit about how God feels about disobedience, doesn't it? I don't want you to miss this, okay? He feels exactly the same this morning about sin as he did then, see? Sin is just as worthy to be the focus of his wrath as it was back then, you see? Again, these are little tidbits you can throw into your witnessing opportunity. He feels exactly the same way about sin now as he did back then, see? And that's the thought that gets me. See, the one sin that we did this morning or whatever was equal, catch it, in potential as the one Adam committed, you see? And what was the result of that sin? The whole human race is going to enter into physical, spiritual, and eternal what? Death. Stick with me. Your one sin this morning or whenever, maybe it was last week, maybe you go longer than me. But the one sin had the same potential as Adam's, see? And the result of Adam's sin was the whole human race is going to enter physical, spiritual, and eternal death. And that, I think, helps us be realistic when we look at our own life and wonder what God thinks about 
a pattern of sinfulness that perhaps we've allowed to be established. Because any one of them was enough to condemn the whole human race. See, that tells you how much God hates sin, but it tells you something else, and that's about his grace. See, if he can forgive all of the sins you've committed and all the sins that I've committed, then he's a God whose grace is greater than his what? Than his anger. See? That's pretty cool, isn't it? Because he poured out all of that judgment on Jesus. And so now his grace can be greater than his anger because his anger was poured out on his son, see? And that was your substitution and mine, if we believe. You understand? So he can forgive all those sins you've committed and all the sins I've committed, and that's a God whose grace is greater than his anger through Christ. See? One sin has the potentiality beyond all human calculation. And it is only when we get God's view of sin that we're ever going to understand how generous his grace is, see. So we don't take that for granted. When we sing a song about grace, that becomes very resonant with us because we, we realize just how huge his anger poured out on sin was and what he thinks about it, see. And when you look at the cross, you realize that he loved the world so much that he took everything that he hates and everything that's contrary to his holy nature and every shameful thing and every vile thing and every potential sin and potential of sin and carried out to the end. And he takes all of that and he puts that on Jesus. See? And that tells you something about his love, doesn't it? That he would go to such extremes to provide salvation to us who were totally unworthy of it. And we are, we're almost done for today because we're almost out of time. But I just want, I want you to have this couple, a couple of these profound statements from 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22 because all this overlaps, okay? So just a few more thoughts. So look at verse 17 of uh, Romans chapter 5. Verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, and we've looked at that, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So Paul, again, seems to be very redundant here, right? But it's actually reiteration, and we can weigh that importance on, on how many times Paul reiterates the teaching. Adam brought about the reign of death, and so you could ask the question, did Adam's sin produce what it was supposed to produce? In other words, think about this. What did the serpent tell Eve before she ate the fruit? If you eat this fruit, you're going to be like God. So did Adam and Eve's sin produce what they thought it was going to produce? No. Because they were already in the image of God. Were they not? Made in God's image? They were already in the image of God. You understand? And, whole, and holy. So, in their sin, did they produce what they thought they were going to produce? That they were going to be like God? No, they didn't. So, in terms then, and, and what you can just sum this up, it's a lot shorter here than it is in my notes and a lot shorter than it was before I started trying to put it in notes, okay? Because there's just a lot you want to take in here. But the idea here is this. In terms of an ability to produce the desired result, that they could be like God, okay, Adam and Eve had no ability to do that. They, they thought perhaps that's what was going to happen, but that's not what happened. The actual opposite thing happened than what they intended. It didn't make them like God. It produced spiritual, physical, and eternal death. That's what it did, see. And by the way, just as a footnote, sin is always like that, and it's still like that now, see. It never produces the desired result. It, sin's going to take you, and I tried to look up, I've heard so many people say this. How many of you have heard somebody say, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay? I've heard people say that since I was like this big. And I've tried to find the author, this, it's anonymous. If you know the author, please tell me, and I'll credit. Okay? Sin, sin's just like it was with Adam and Eve, see. It takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, costs you more than you want to pay. And in the end, you won't have what you think you're going to get from it, see. But conversely, see, 
Conversely, principle number seven, the principle of life, Jesus' death and resurrection produced the exact result that God intended. It gave Jesus authority over death. It did exactly what God planned for it to do, see? See the middle of verse 17? Much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So those words are very important. Abundance, again, we looked at that before. Exceeding measure, overflowing above the ordinary. Abundance of grace. Favor on the part of the giver. Thanks on the part of the receiver. Gift of righteousness. That's the gift of the ability to conform to the righteousness of God. See, you received that when you came to faith. Now the law is something you desire to uphold, and you have the ability to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit, see? Before, the law just measured your wickedness. Now, through God's gift of righteousness imputed to you, you look at the law and say, this is my desire. It's my desire to be pleasing to God. And as you read his word, it resonates with you like, this is what I want to do, right? As you sing the songs of his praise and you, and you hear about the things that we're to do, you're like, that's what I want to do, Lord, please you know, I want to conform my will to yours. I want to be in your word every day. And I want to see more of the fruit of the Spirit visible in my life. And I want to be doing things that I wouldn't normally do when I was in the flesh. But these are the things you're empowering me to do. See, that's a gift of righteousness. See, we're able to become in Christ all that God requires of a man to be, that he could never be on his own. See, and we're going to reign in life. That's spiritual life. That's eternal life. And even this physical life, as difficult as it can be, and as hard as it can be, is fuller and more glorious. Reigning is literally true of God. It's literally true of Jesus. And it's going to be true of the believer, see, both now and over the circumstances of our life and in the future, in the eternal state. You reign in life because Colossians 3.3 says your life is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus says in John 10.28, he says this, and I will give them eternal life. I'll give, I'll, will, and I give eternal life to them. They'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. God's a transformer, see, of life. That, that salvation is a total change. It turns a child of Adam into a child of God. It turns a dead man into a living man. You reign in life. You have power over sin. You have power over darkness and death by the power of God's Holy Spirit living in you. See, you're not a victim of sin anymore. And then here we get to verse 18, which really sums up everything that's been said. And so we'll just, we'll just read it. And just um, it really picks up on the end of verse 12. If you look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12, you stop at the end of verse 12 and you skip to verse 18 you realize that, really, verses 13 through 17 are parenthetical. Paul makes a statement, then he kind of explains what he's talking about, then he kind of picks up with the idea in verse 18. So we'll do that. Verse 18, so then as through, I told you we weren't going to break down everything here, so we'll just do it. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted in justification of life to all men, just like we noted in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. The first all men are those who are descended from Adam, and the second all men are those who what? Those who believe. Okay, so the alls are not equal. So, and that's going to be our, next, our thought next time from 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23, where Paul says this, For in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And here's the qualifying verse, verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. And after that, here it is, those who are Christ's that is coming. So, it's not everybody, it's not this universal salvation, so to forget all the evangelism and forget all the you're dead in your sin, everything's going to be okay. It's not that, see? It's just this. You know, in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Who are his at his coming, you understand? Who've understood that you have to confess your sins, you have to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. You have to call on the name of the Lord. See? These are the ways that 
Salvation is incorporated into the heart of man, delivered by, as a vehicle, the gospel. Holy Spirit goes to work, and your volitional response is to say in the heart of hearts, yes, I am who God says I am. I, I'm as wicked as he said I was. I've done the things he said I did, and Jesus came for the reasons he said he came and died and rose because of me and all those who have sinned in Adam. See, that's a volitional response on your part. God's Holy Spirit going to work. You couldn't do it from him, except through him, but he's at work. You make that commitment, you see? So, no universalism here. Paul doesn't spend dozens of verses explaining, you know, how lost you are to say, never mind, everybody gets in. It's not that. Okay, now look at verse 19. For as through the one man's, what? What's it say? For through the one man's disobedience, so how did death come by one man? Well, through disobedience, okay? He just says it in a different way. The many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, so how did life come through by one man? Through what? Obedience, right. Stick with me, okay? The many will be made righteous. The spirit of Adam's act was labeled, and it's disobedience. All men in solidarity, sinnership, if you can just coin the phrase, phrase if you would. If you will, a stained nature. So if you want to kind of identify those who are in Adam, so how do I know if I'm born again? Well, Let's just identify that, because Paul kind of does that in verse 19. He says, you know, for as through one man's disobedience, that's how death came through, that many were made sinners. So how does that, does that describe you? People who are still in Adam haven't dealt with their sin, see? They disobey, they bear the fruit of disobedience. These are the words that resonate with those who are in Adam. You disobey, you bear the fruit of disobedience, you do unrighteous deeds, that's the habit of your life, see? They, have, they were made sinners, you're still in your sin. You don't have any choice but to sin, see? You want to do right, but you're not doing right, and you can't do right. You're still in Adam, see? You disobey, disobedience, unrighteous deeds, unrighteous fruit, fruit of the flesh. These are the things that describe those who are in Adam, see? And then the spirit of Jesus' act was labeled, and it was obedience. Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming, what's the next word? Obedient. To death, even to death on a cross, see? Just describes Jesus' life, doesn't it? We could just go through a whole bunch of passages that talk about obedience, but that really, that really defined Jesus' life, didn't it? And it becomes the definition and defining words of those who are in Christ, see? Not that you do it perfectly because you're still clothed in unredeemed flesh, and it still has appetites, and you have to bring those into subjection, don't you? And Paul tells us all about how to go about that. But the fact of the matter is, he was obedient in life to the Father. He's obedient to the point of death. He was always obedient. His whole life is one uninterrupted act of obedience. Obedience to the cross. And by the cross, at the end of verse 19, the many, it says, by the cross, through the obedience of the one, and that's to the obedience to the point of death. We just read it, right? Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. So he was obedient to the cross. The many will be made righteous. And all who believe then will be in solidarity. They will be made righteous. Righteousness imputed to everyone who believes, you see? So, if you're not in Adam anymore, but now you're in Christ, what's the pattern of your life? Well, what are the words that describe you? Well, people who are true believers are people who have, in obedience, dealt with their sin. That's the first step. Not resisting what God says about your sin and saying, I'm pretty good, I'm going to do it my way. No, it's admitting that you have to deal with your sin. You are in Adam and lost and no possible way of recovery except through Christ. And as a result, See, they obey, and they bear the fruit of righteousness in righteous deeds. 
That defines what it looks like to be in Christ, see? You don't get to be in Christ because you're righteous. You become righteous through Christ's gift, and then you do righteous acts, and obedience defines your life. And the longer you're in the faith, hopefully obedience defines your life more and more. See? As you learn more about what's pleasing to the Lord, as Paul said, as we desire to know what's pleasing to the Lord, what do you do? You start doing it, right? If you read in God's word where it says, don't do this, and you're still doing that, then you go, okay, well, I need to stop doing that. Or if it says, you know, be begin to do this more and more as you see the day approaching, then you realize, oh, um, I'm not doing it more and more as I see the day approaching. I need to be. You see, that's, that's the obedient response. And, and those who are truly in Christ, that's what they want to do. See? That's what they want to do. Now look quickly back at Romans 5.21, and we're going to finish up. So that, as sin ran in death, so this isn't even a question. Paul explained it so carefully. Sin reigned in death. For as in Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15.22, again, so also in Christ all will be made alive. See? So how does that happen? The end of verse, uh, Romans 5.21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, what? Grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. Sin reigns in death. Grace reigns in life. Say it together with me. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that great? I mean, where there was the reign of death, Adam's sin was legally and effectively our sin. Adam's death was legally and effectively our death. Adam was the first fruits of sin and death. See, God comes with his grace and he gives to us the gospel in Jesus. Death is overruled by life for all who believe because Jesus has been raised to life and is the first fruits for all those who believe in Christ. Jesus' death then becomes legally and effectively our death, and Jesus' resurrection becomes legally and effectively our resurrection for all who believe. See, that's how it works. So, now that we know where death started and what will happen at the end, now we're going to get the map out what order that takes place, that resurrection of life next time. See, and that's what Paul decides to do. He wants to show you the beginning of it and the end of it and what happened in the middle, and then, okay, now that you know you're going to reign in life, both spiritual, physical, and eternal, let's figure out when that's going to happen. Because he, he doesn't want believers to be in the dark. So he's going to take some time and explain that. And that's where we're going next time, Lord willing. All right, let's bow and be dismissed in it with really a challenge in our own hearts as we look at the gospel and all that it entails. And then we'll turn it over to Mike as we want to look a little bit at, uh, want to highlight one of our a couple of our missionaries that are heading out. And then um, uh, over to John so we can know a little bit about how we're going to minister to uh, Ben and Kelly. All right, let's bow. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for uh, the clarity in which uh, Paul expresses in two different passages in Romans and Corinthians, two different letters, two different groups of people saying the same thing to them, wanting them not to be in the dark about this, about how all this originated. It's really apparent from Paul's teaching, uh, we're not inherently good. We don't have in us good things that just have been suppressed by how we've been raised and, and the circumstances around our life. We are dead in our sin, dead in our trespasses and sin, in which we formerly walked in the manner of life of our forefathers. That's, that's where we are, dead. Dead spiritually, on our way to dead physically, and untreated death eternally. Father, help no one who's in the sound of my voice today to be found there in Adam. Because today is the day of salvation. Today is the accepted time. Today you can confess Jesus is Lord. Today you can believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. Today you can call on the name of the Lord. Today you can believe 
all those who believe in the deepest part of you and all that Jesus said and all that he did and all that it means for him to be in control and give him you. Father, we thank you today for an opportunity for that to happen. If that you prayed that prayer today or you'd like to know more, just respond in the card that's in the chair in front of you. Give that to me before you go. Either you prayed it today or you'd like to know more. It would be my joy to rejoice with those who prayed that today and put them in contact with some resources to help them grow. And for those who want to know more, it would be my joy to explain that and put them together with another believer who can bring them a better understanding of all that this entails. Lord, we thank you for our church. We thank you for the, the, uh, the joy that it is to be together in fellowship. We thank you for what we've done today, just kind of following that simple pattern from the New Testament, uh, worship in song and worship in the reading of the word and worship in giving and, and encourage one another and lift each other up to the ministry that we can do, meeting the needs and immediate needs. Thank you for the ministry we can do and to one another, the household of faith. Thank you that all that's going on in that respect. Lord, I pray that as we're in your word this week, that as we looked at what some of the trademarks of those, the words that describe those who are in Christ, obedience is the one. It marks Jesus' life. It marks the ones who are his followers. Lord, I pray that as we read your word and we see what we're to do, that we don't make excuses to not do it, no matter how, what we would assess as relatively small commands or large ones, uh, both of them uh, are supposed to be responded to by obedience. I pray that will be the case. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Michael.